the intro. Welcome to Photography Chat with Merlin. Photography Chat with Merlin. Thanks everyone for coming into another episode of the Photography Chat. Uh, we're at uh, episode 11, and we've got Diane Kahn with us coming from uh, Beverly Hills, California. How are you doing t- uh, today, Diane? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. Do you want to take a second just to uh, let everyone know a little bit about um, you know, who you are and what you've been working on? Sure. Hi, everybody. My name's Diane Kahn. I am a street photographer, and uh, somehow Merlin uh, discovered me, and I discovered him, and um, I'm going to talk today about my book called Holding Hands that is out on Amazon, and it is the result of taking 8,000 individual photos of people holding hands all over the world, and I'm really happy to be here. 8,000? Wow, I didn't realize it was that many, so you just spent like I'm assuming several years amassing this content. Yeah, that's a good assumption, like seven Se- years. Okay. <laughs> so when did you start this project? I took my first conscious picture of people holding hands, I think 2014, okay. and I had no plan. I didn't know what I was going to do with them, but I did know I loved a digital camera, and I mean an iPhone digital camera, and I can go sideways um, and say that I, I had got my first camera uh, a Kodak Instamatic 124, which of course was only black and white, in high school for selling raffle tickets. Oh, I wow. Still, third in the raffle ticket sales, and I got this camera, which is what I wanted, actually. And I started taking, I mean, they're point and shoot in, in a very simple sense. And you had to pay to have the photos developed, and there were 12 pictures on a roll, so you had to think about what you were going to take a photo of. And... Um, I'm going to really jump through. I had some point-and-shoot digital cameras. The best other camera I had was a Lumix. Uh, You know, totally simple Lumix. And I tried to take my holding hands pictures with it. I never had an SLR. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. It was just not who I was. But this was my Lumix. And the problem I found, because there's problem slash challenge I had, which... Every photographer knows they have some kind of challenge. This is that people don't hold hands for long, which if you start observing people holding hands, you'll see they stop for 20 different reasons. They reach in the pocket, fix their hair, turn a corner, open a door, answer their phone, fix their lipstick, change their clothes. Um, It's unbelievable. So by the time I turn this on, so I'm going to turn it on. 1,000, 2,000. Now I have an image. Now I have to focus it. And it's not an easy focus. So that's the end of that. Picture's gone. So I use my iPhone, which is instant focus, and it's right there. So it's really like a kid's camera in a lot of ways, although as you reminded me, it can do a lot. So that's what I'm using. It can very much. And the Instamatic, I I have to say another Canadian reference with the Instamatic there is uh, the Tragically Hip had that in a song there where it's like, uh, they're talking about photos, and you have to wait a minute because it's an Instamatic. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. It, um, it, it's been a real adventure. I, I know almost anybody who ever had a phone or a point-and-shoot digital discovered that they could take pictures, uh, you know, randomly 
of anything as many as they wanted to and there's no downside you know you just get rid of them and my husband was an award-winning photographer and um the photo that won him awards was during World War II, so a long time ago. And he's been through, he had a, there's still a dark room out here in the garage that he put together 60 years ago. So, you know, he was Mr. Photography Expert, I literally, and had every camera there was. And going to digital was a challenge because, you know, in those days, it's like, whoa, film only film. Well, mm-hmm. harder and harder to do. But I learned so much from watching him take photos because you could put him in an empty room and he'd find an amazing photo. So I learned a lot by without even realizing it, watching and observing and then trying to find my own interest and style. And that led me to pictures of people holding hands taken only from the back. That's really interesting. I, I took a look at the book and I liked um, the sort of idea around it, like that, that connection of people. And I, I think um, especially given what we've been through the last couple of years, um, connection is just that much more important i think a lot of us have sort of um felt a lack of community and like connection to other people um especially being in like varying degrees of isolation and lockdown throughout um what's been going on in different parts of the world with this uh, pandemic well merlin i know you took photos of yourself during lockdown i mean you took photos on a daily basis for a period during lockdown i'm just wondering what items if you have any particular items that really draw you to taking pictures of them no matter what they are or whether you're choosing differently that that's a great question so um (laughs) my friend brian you know bless him he made a comment to me one day he's like you know, you have a really fucked up way that you see the world. And I appreciate that you share that with us with your photos. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know if that's really a compliment or if you're like, you know, throwing some shade at my photos, but, um, he was just like, you, you see things that other people don't pay attention to. And that's what I really like to take photos of. Like when I'm walking around, like I'm, rarely ever looking like straightforward it's like i'm looking like up and around and to the sides and stuff um because i like looking for words and messages and in like you know streets and things like that or you see in in some places people put these like little pieces of art in in random places and um you know if you're not paying attention you could just like walk past it and miss it and where that really came to fruition was uh, when i first moved back to toronto um, I was having a hard time connecting to the city because I'd never intended to ever actually live in Toronto. It just kind of, it, it happened that, um, a situation came up and in a very short period of time, I found myself living in Toronto and then I had a lot of time on my hands to contemplate like what decision I had made and what if I, what did I do to myself kind of thing, um, but while I was trying to figure out where I fit in Toronto, I spent a lot of time in Kensington Market there. Mm. And one of the things I found really fascinating about the market, because I was there almost every day, was that if you look around at like the graffiti and the stickers and the art and all the different things there, you start to notice that every day it changes. And the mm. market itself is almost like a living thing. Like people are adding to it and removing things and you know, the weather affects some stuff. And, um, I just found it really fascinating. Like, you know, all the little things that if you start paying attention, start presenting themselves. Like there's this one artist, I have no idea what their name was, but they made these really cool little matchstick robots. 
and they would put them on like little pieces of wood or like metal or something. And then they'd glue them up in different spaces Mm. in the market. And whoever the artist was, they would also camouflage them a little bit. So they'd like paint them black or like make them match in with uh, whatever background they're put into. So unless you were really looking for them, you never really found them. And I always find that kind of stuff interesting. Um, but it wasn't until a couple of years ago, I started taking pictures of people and I was always a little bit nervous about that. Um, cause you know, people have opinions and feelings and, um, whatnot. Whereas like, you know, streets and, and walls and stuff don't really have an opinion on things. Um, so that's been a lot of work, like trying to be comfortable with, um, taking pictures of, of people. Cause I don't really want to be disruptive. And I've seen other street photographers out there that, um, they'll just put their camera in someone's face and take a picture and just like walk away from them. And I've kind of created a rule for myself that if something seems like if I look in the viewfinder, my camera and whatever I'm about to take a picture of feels too intimate to me that I feel like I have to ask permission before I can take that photo. And so what I do, I had these little cards made. They're, uh, they're from moo.com and Mm -hmm. they, they make that tiny little thing in your, like the, the little Mm -hmm. pocket in your jeans, that useless Mm -hmm. one, it makes them usable. (laughs) And so it's like, you know, I have like my, my contact information on it and stuff. And I just say, Hey, like, do you mind if I take a picture of you? Like, just pretend like I didn't interrupt you. That thing you were doing before was really cool. And like, you know, I post stuff on Instagram and, um, you know, if you end up hating it, you can find it here. You can get a hold of me and I can remove it from the internet for you. And uh, people have been really receptive to that. Generally, they allow it? Most of the time, yeah. Like some people get really, some people are like, no, like they get really upset. And then other people are kind of more fascinated. They're like, well, why do you want to take a picture of me? Like, I don't feel that interested. And my favorite thing is actually giving Polaroids to people. Mm. Because that one, I don't end up ever having a copy of whatever photo I've created. But um, if someone looks interesting, I'll offer them either a a Fuji Instax photo or a Polaroid photo. And um, that's been an interesting process. Like there, when I was helping my partner move from Toronto to Vancouver in November, 2020, we stopped in Calgary for a few days and I was picking up some food from this like, you know, drive-in diner kind of place. And while I was waiting for the food, I saw this lady and she looked kind of like upset or whatever. And she saw that I had an old Polaroid SLR 680 around my neck. Um, the pop-up Polaroid similar to the SX 70. And she's like, is that an old Polaroid? And like, we had chat about it and she's like, I didn't know they still made film for those things. And that's kind of wild. And I was like, Hey, you know what? Like, do you want a portrait? Like it's a Polaroid. So like, I'm not going to keep it. It'll be for you. And, She's like, oh, no, that'd be a waste, like, you know, and I'm not, like, worth it or whatever. And I'm like, no, it's like, you know, if you want a portrait, here's a chance. You can have this moment. And she's like, you know what? Okay, fine. And it was, like, during pandemic time, so she was wearing a mask. And she's like, do I take the mask off? Like, do I do I keep it on? I'm like, well, this is your portrait. So, like, you know, how do you want you to be pictured? And she's like, I'll take the mask off. And so I took the photo, and it... Polaroid, the the new Polaroid is um, not quite the same as the old stuff. So you have 
to have a little bit more care with it. So when you first shoot the frame, you want to shield it from light for like the first like two to five minutes. Mm. If it's cold out, you also want to keep it warm. <clears throat> so one of the things I do, I you know tuck it in under the armpit for like a minute, so it, it like keeps it warm. Make sure that the development is smooth. And uh, so we were just chatting a little bit while it was developing. Then I gave it to her, and like she had a little bit of a moment because she's like, "You you wouldn't imagine the day that I've had today. It's just been a really terrible day." And she's like, "This is um, a really nice end note to the day." Mm. And um, you know that was. Something I was like, yeah, photography is kind of a cool thing because it helps connect people. It helps mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> people feel good about themselves. And, you know, sometimes it makes them feel bad depending on what kind of photography it is. But there's just a lot of different visceral things about photography. Yeah. Yeah, there certainly are. And, uh, you know, it's a very different approach to talk to people. I don't talk to people. I, as all the photos are taken from behind, so I don't have to deal with do they want their photo taken or not. And there might be recognizable to them and a few close friends, but that is going to be it. Um, and there are very few, but occasionally I will take a photo and think, gee, it's tempting to say, excuse me, I just took your photo. Can I show it to you? And and I'm happy to send it to you if you'd like it. So because, you know, nobody sees themselves from the back anyway. No. Um, So anyway, I haven't done it yet. I'll report back if I do. But for now, (laughs) I just take them anonymously and there they are. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Like you think back in the day, photography was such a... It's like a powerful tool and it was also, it wasn't in the hands of everyone. So, you know, you look at, you mentioned that century book, um, yesterday, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there was a time when people would get excited that someone random had a camera and they would want their picture taken. They'd never see it because that person, like they'd never see that person again, but just the idea that they'd be immortalized with something would get people excited. And, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there used to be a lot more. It's like emphasis and the importance of like cataloging and photograph uh, uh, photographing these things. Like, yeah, and there's a, a time period there where the U.S. government would have like staff photographers whose job was just to drive around America and take pictures of like the state of America at that time, because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know it was important to archive that. And I feel like that's something that we've sort of lost in in the past years. You know, I think it came out for Expo 67 in Canada, but there was a famous book that came out by the name of Call Them Canadians. And I'm not sure who did it, but they went around the country and took pictures of random people doing random things all across the country to show a portrait of the country and its people. And I've never, I mean, it reminds me of that, remember A Day in America? I haven't seen that one, no. Oh, it's worth having a look at. There's a photo book called, I think it's called A Day in the Life of America. But on one day, from midnight all the way for 24 hours, they took pictures all over the country of anything and everything on that one day. And I believe it was called A Day in the Life of America. But it was really a great idea. Here's all the different things that can happen in a day. You, You may be looking for it. I didn't think of that. Yeah, I'm just writing these down because um, these these sound great. 
I, I do like those kind of things. Like um, Robert Frank's The Americans is oh. is a fantastic one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, it, it was kind of poo pooed on originally because you know mm-hmm. he he didn't show America at its like strongest and most like powerful. He showed the sort of downtrodden side of it that you know we we tend to know is maybe a little bit more common than like the you know uber powerful like you know number one uh, country in the world sort of like stance that the U.S. likes to pose. You know he showed it a bit more delicate and, and human and as it was. Um, that's a great book. And like Fred Herzog's, um, well, any of his books, um, capture Canada in such a beautiful way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like, um, mm-hmm. and, and those I find are like books like that are important because it, it catalogs this like time period. And it's just interesting to see um, what people looked like in those times and what they were getting up to. So I think it's really cool, the book that you did, because you, you've captured um, a, a bit of that, like, you know, not only the, the connection of people, but, um, seeing the different styles of all the different places. Like what cities, um, did you take this in? I'm going to, I'm going to guess like, uh, there was a bit in, uh, California and also New York, but, um, were there other uh, places that you photographed? There's a Toronto photo. There are a couple photos in Toronto. Um, mostly, mostly winter. Cause that's when I was there. There's photos in Mexico, various parts of Mexico, Mexico City and Oaxaca and San Miguel. There's photos in Paris. There's photos in Copenhagen, uh, outside Copenhagen at the, at the uh, what's it called? The, the ship museum. Okay. Um, and, you know, they're all over the place. Wherever I was at Cam and Rome, um, countryside, it, it really... As you know, I mean, I, I can hardly wait to get back to traveling. Plus, it's a great hobby. You know, it's great to have a hobby. Um, and and also, as you can see in the book, people had masks on and they're holding hands or gloves on, either winter gloves in Canada or, you know, um, uh, sanitary gloves and they're holding hands. So it's it's so clear that that connection, I've seen people kissing through masks you know, on the street, they both have their masks on and they stop for a kiss. It's the same kind of thing. They just want that that sense of connection. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important. And, you know, one more book that blew me away is is by the French photographer Abge. And it's literally on purpose the size of a Paris brick from the cobblestone. Oh, cool. Uh, I have it in New York. It's probably 1,200 pages. And it's he, st- he goes through all 12 of the arrondissements think there's 12 maybe there's 16 or 19 by now however many there are um or by now that i'm finally learning about maybe 20 let's say that you know he goes through all of them and takes photos in all of them in order like goes through them all and it's just they're old they're black and white they're streets they're empty buildings they're people doing things and it's wonderful to see that array of images across a time and space yeah, stuff like that is is absolutely beautiful. Um, I, I'm not familiar with that book, but um, in in a little bit more recent time, uh, Jason Lee did a really beautiful book of Texas that he called uh, A Plain View. Mm. And um, he spent several months road tripping around in an old Lincoln town car through uh, through Texas, just taking pictures of things that most people drive past. Like, you know... Um, old burger shacks that are now like all 
uh, boarded up and have like residential areas that have grown in around them. And like, you know, they're sort of like the odd duck out kind of thing. And the thing that's interesting about the book is you'd think all the places he shot were abandoned because you don't see a single person in any of the photos, but he's just like, these were just sleepy towns in Texas that definitely were uh, inhabited, but you know, they're just, you didn't really see anyone around there. And it was cool too. Cause he shot all that with a four by five camera and uh, expired um, Kodak four by five film, which from a technical perspective was kind of cool. And um, just also just interesting that, um, you know, most people would, try and use something a little simpler and uh you know he's got a thing where um it takes like you know 15 minutes or so just to even get ready to take one photo um so did uh, they work with the expired film yeah it worked actually quite well because he used this thing it's it's called uh ready load which was a really cool concoction between um kodak and fuji and um they made these little satchels that uh, enclosed a four by five film frame inside of it. So typically with like four by five, you have to like manually load it in a dark bag or a dark room and put it into the film holders. And it's, it's a lot of work and fussing to, you know, make an image with it. But this ready load stuff made it super easy because you just take this little satchel and you put it in a special ready load holder, throw it in your camera, take the picture, pull it out, and then you just send that satchel to your lab for development. Hmm. But because Fuji um, is Fuji, the product ended up dying and they stopped producing it. So he went on a big eBay tear and bought up all of the ready load that he could find and used uh, as much of it as he could for the project. But it was just cool, like seeing these places that, you know, we've, we've all done the road trips where it's like you just see these nondescript things as you're driving around and you don't really pay any mind to them. Um but it was just kind of neat to see like you have someone taking the time to be like, this looks important and I'm Mm going to capture this. And um, it just elicits a lot of feelings when you're like looking through stuff like that, because it it triggers memories that you may have that you've forgotten about. I I agree. I've been looking through some old photo books. My husband had quite a collection of photo books and I'm just now flipping through them. And there's several like that. It also reminds me of that great old movie, the last picture show which I, an old black and white film, not that old, um, maybe from the late 70s, but it's, there's so many, many images in this black and white film that seem like they're photographs. Oh, wild. It's uh, Peter Bogdanovich directed, Sybil Shepherd, Timothy Bottoms. It's really great, but oh. it's very visual. When I think of the, the film, I think of the visuals. I think of the, the tumbleweed blowing through this small, dying Texan town. You know, there's, I mean, images evoke so much for us. They absolutely do. Um, a, a friend was just visiting the my, my studio here this week, and um, I showed her this documentary from my childhood, <laughs> which was not that long ago, like in the 90s. Um, but there was this um, skateboard music tour that happened in British Columbia in 1999 called Hicks on Sticks. And, um, a a band that I grew up with was one of the bands that was playing in this, uh, in this musical skateboarding, fantastical tour. Unfortunately, um, the tour wasn't the grand thing that they thought it was all going to turn out to. And it bankrupted the skateboard company um, Mm. that started it. They were called powder milk skateboards. Um, and 
the, everyone participating ended up having to pony in their own money just to finish the, the tour. And, um, I had no idea that any of this was the case. Like, uh, when we got to play, uh, like we, I was in a crappy band when I was in high school and we got to open for this, this show. And so we were just all excited of the opportunity to play with our heroes and see some cool skateboarding. Um, but then they made a documentary of like how this abysmal failure was like kind of an epic road trip adventure, but it just sort of went over the disaster that it was. And I was showing her some, uh, some clips from, from this documentary and, um, it was just wild seeing things that don't exist anymore. Cause like in, in the Coca-Cola, there used to be, it used to be a toll road not that long ago. Like I think within the last probably 15 years, um, but there's people who've started driving that have no idea that at one time it was a toll road and, you know, mm. to access it halfway through, you had to go through a toll booth and give them 10 bucks so that you could continue wow. the rest of the way on your trip. And it was just kind of wild to like see that, like they captured some video where they're just at the toll booths at the rest stop there. And, um, it's just interesting, like how that kind of imagery brings back, brings back things. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. And, I mean, I love looking through photo books. It's probably my one of the, one of the favorite things I do is looking through whether it's photos of sculpture or art or people or cities or or whatever. I just I just love looking at images. I guess because because you can also tell your own stories. They and yeah, you can tell your own stories with it. And I think making photo books is a very important thing too, because. Um, all of us have so many interesting things we could share. And I think some people have this fear that like maybe their photography is not good enough because they didn't use a fancy camera or, you know, they don't have like an agent or something like that, which is why I, I found your story very interesting is that you built this beautiful book just with iPhone photos. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it just like, I, I find that really wonderful because it's just proof that like the barrier of entry to create something awesome isn't that high. Like, you know, you, you have it in your pocket right now. You can, you can start creating. Right. And, um, you know, I, I don't like that there's some gatekeepers in the photography world that make people feel like maybe they're not like worthy or like good enough because they don't have some fancy camera or they don't understand the technical aspects of like, you know, shutters and apertures and all that. And, you know, to be completely frank, that's me. that person is me, <laughs> Carolyn, you know, I mean, the great thing about getting older is I don't care what people think about me and I don't care about what they think about what I'm doing. I love it. I'm happy with it. I know it works. People respond to it and that's enough for me, but yeah. you're right. 20 years ago, I would have been all worried that I didn't know from cameras and I'd be listening to my husband talk about them and it's going, Phew! Because you know what, I, I, I don't, I'm, it's not who I am. I'd, I'd much rather just take a shot and see what happens. I don't, none of my photos, I didn't make any changes in them. The, the guy who did the layout for the book may have made some changes, but by and large, they're just the photos I took. They're not filtered, they're not cut, they're not cropped, they're not stretched or not stretched. They're just what I took. And that's kind of like, that's sort of my philosophy is I want to see the world as it is, you know, and, and, and going back to, we didn't talk about photorealism, but one of my husband's great heroes was David Douglas Duncan, who's really well known for war photography in particular. Okay. 
and we have some books of his Korean War, especially some major images, and 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 really was embedded in in the very first embedding. You know, like be, I mean, people did it before in, in, in World War II, but this was really amazing. And and I found a book in the famous library I've been telling you about called the Pulitzer Prize Archive, which is Press Photography Press Photography Awards 1942 to 1998. So what's interesting about this is. Uh, several things. One, most of, most of them have um, people in them, but then they don't have them all. So um, this is, you know, Babe Ruth retiring from professional baseball. Oh, wild. Well, you see, it's his back. Yeah. Right? You know, accepting the adulation of the crowd. And the players and everybody else. And that was him retiring. That was 1948. And, um, you know, planes. Only because these are amazing. This is a near collision. I don't know how they got the photo. Whoa. But it's planes in a near collision. And this is the one photo that won for that year. If you think of all the photos, even in those days, that were taken. Um, ref I'll, do, I'll just do this last one. Refugees going across a wrecked bridge in Korea, 1951. Holy shit. I mean, it's kind of, you know, in those days, what it took to get those photos, you know, you know, you've got it. I mean, there's the cameras were, you know, big and cumbersome and God knows the, the credentials they had to have to get anywhere. And um, I mean, all of those were clearly some sort of press position, you know, the guys up and above the above the bridge and, and the planes. I don't know how he got that. And Babe Ruth, they're down there. But it's, you know, that ability to find that moment and capture that moment that I think can be so life-changing. I don't know if you remember, there was a picture, I think, in National Geographic of these one of, one of the many famines in Africa. And there's a vulture on the road. Yeah. And there's a little baby that's dying. I do remember that one. And um, I am sure that I read a story that the photographer of that photo died by suicide some years later. Hmm. And, you know, I read about how incredibly difficult, difficult it was to document things like that. And the, and the impact it has on the photographer, which, you know, you don't normally hear about. You just see these ama amazing photos. And you, I mean, Mr. Korean War there with the bridge, seeing thousands of refugees, you know, what does that do to you? And now somebody who's in Ukraine photographing, and we've seen that photographers have been killed last week, taking photos, trying to document what's going on. So, I mean, to me, it's an incredibly noble profession in, in every level, at every level, no matter what you're doing. It's about trying to document the world we live in. That's my... It's my big thought for the day. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree though. Like it's, it's important to document this and like, um, have, like some, leave something behind. Like, um, I don't consider myself a photographer. Um, really. I think I'm more of an archivist. Um, I use photography as a tool to capture, um, what I see around me and like the people that are important and the things I find important. Um, and a lot of it stems from mental illness. Um, so I've struggled with, um, like de depression and suicidal ideation for, for most of my life. And, um, 
it's it's something that is um it's just weird having a thought that like yeah um, i know i'm not gonna be around for very long not because of natural causes but because at some point i'm gonna lose the war with my mind um so until that happens i've been using photography as a way to have something that i can you know hopefully leave behind and someone finds it and can see um you know some of the interesting places i've been able to go and interesting people i've been able to meet and um not have those stories just kind of die with me and uh so I, I feel like photography can be a powerful tool for a lot of different things well, i think so too but now is the time where i am compelled to say i'm sorry to hear what you've just said and i totally understand you and for anybody who's watching the phone number is 1-800-SUICIDE if you're in trouble and you're depressed and you want someone to talk to there's also 1-800-GET-HELP and um there's texting there's a suicide text line which i think is 611 but i'll look it up before we're finished and there's also um canada has their own mental health um lines and advocacy i don't know those numbers off the top of my head but yeah, i don't know those numbers off the top of my head either um but i would say calling those numbers is far more important than calling for a health check on someone that that's the last thing you should ever do. Um, I know that Colorado has made a big change where, um, if people call health for health checks there, they don't send police. They send, um, a crisis advisor and someone who can, um, do like, you know, mental assessments and, mm -hmm. um, it's a pilot program and they've done 2,700 successful calls and, not a single one of those calls required police intervention. Um, so that's become a bit of a prototype for other countries in the U S to start adopting. And I really hope that other countries everywhere start adopting that because, um, you know, that's one thing I worry about. And I talk openly about like, you know, what, what I, what I go through and it makes me worried a little bit that, you know, sometimes someone might call a mental health check on me and, um, I don't want that because, you know, I've seen what the police do and also I'm not white. So it's like, you know, a double bogey for me there. So, um, don't call the cops on your friends, you know, just check in on them and try and support them as, as, mm -hmm. uh, as much as you can. And I will say, I just looked it up. The crisis text line is seven, four, one, seven, four, one text home to seven, four, one, seven, four, one, 24, seven crisis canceling. Um, there is a documentary that HBO made, I think it's called Joe and Ernie, but it is about these former cops who are trained in mental health and they are the guys who go on the calls instead of the police with guns. They don't carry guns. They know where all the mental health sources are in the town in Texas and they take them there. They oh, meet good. the person somewhere and they escort them there and they follow up with them. There's, there's so much to say about it. And you know, one of the reasons I put this book together was that I found that looking on my iMac at these images of people holding hands taken from the back, just going through the images, I felt better. Something about seeing that connection just improved my mood a little bit. And if you've struggled or suffered or hated or had or lived with or beside depression, um, 
some of us know that an incremental increase can make a big difference and sort of get you over the bar of, oh, you know what? It's okay mm-hmm. to, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Um, both of which side I've been on. And um, that was also part of the reason I did the book. And I talk about in the introduction that my mother died by suicide when I was a teenager. And that was before anybody talked about it. They didn't. They they figured the safest thing to do was say nothing and just hope that everybody, you know, got over it. And um, now it's totally different. People talk about it and share about it and try and get help about it. And there's all these organizations and there's one I'm working with, hopefordepression.org, which is based in New York, and they are getting a, a portion of the proceeds from the book because they're really working to educate, destigmatize, um, and do research to, to help this massive problem that's so underfunded because nobody wants to talk about it. So here we are talking about it and, um, and you know, wanting to reach out and let people know there's help no matter where they are. And, you know... Interestingly enough, one more thing is that 30% of the calls that the, the National Suicide Hotline gets are for people who are concerned about a loved one or a friend and literally don't know what to do. And, and they're also helpful with, you know, what to say, what not to say, what you, know, what you can do, how you can try and get help for yourself, for them. You know, there's, there's an array of help out there for people. That, and that's a great uh, point there. And I, I just looked it up um, to hear the Canada um, hotline is uh, 1-833-456-4566. Um, and yeah, it, it is something that even in, in recent time was not really discussed. Um, like when I started being more open about it in like 20... It's like 2013, 2014. Um, I started being open about so on social media about it because I got tired of pretending um, mm-hmm. because I was finding I was having a really difficult time keeping track of all the lies that I was telling people to like front that I was okay. And people would be like, oh, you said that about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry. It's like, you know, I, I can't keep track of like <laughs> what I'm saying to other people to pretend like I'm okay. So I was like, you know, fuck it. Honesty is the best policy this is where I'm at. And the response was interesting because a great deal of people were like, Whoa, Whoa, shut the fuck up. Don't say that you're going to end your career. Like, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to do it. No one's going to want to work with you because they'll think you're crazy. And then another bunch of people were like, Hey, thank you for opening up about this because I have my own demons I'm working with or my own concerns. And I kind of felt alone with it. And, um, so they're like, it's, it's nice to know that like, um, someone else, <clears throat> the, like someone else who they thought, um, was a little more put together was, was also struggling with it. So, um, it's important to, you know, be open and honest if you can yeah, and just know that it's okay to not be okay. Like I've, I've especially found in talking with lots of different creatives that, um, this is not an uncommon theme for most of us creatives that, you know, we, we deal with darkness and things like that. Um, which I think allows a lot of us to see the light in a very different way when we see it, because we've seen how dark things can get. So when we see beautiful things, we can appreciate it like that much more. And like, we get, it gets us more excited about it. Um, yeah. 
It's just, it's a, it's an interesting balance to make though. Very much so. Yeah. Sorry to get a bit heavy there. <laughs> it, it ties in with photography because, you know, taking pictures of people, I, I can guarantee that some percentage of the people I took photos of were struggling with depression just by yeah. definition. Well, and especially given um, the current climate of things, because like, you know, we've been dealing with an unprecedented um, thing these last couple of years that has caused a lot of people who've never had to deal with mental health stuff before to have feelings of like depression and, and things like that. Like I've had a lot of friends that are like, oh my God, like this is what you've lived with. Like how, you know, I've just started feeling this way and it's like devastating and you know it's like this is just what you go through every day and i'm like yeah pretty much like <laughs> you just got to find reasons to to keep going and your know, photography has been a really big one for me with that and uh, same with doing this chat it's it's fun to like you know talk with a different person every week and um you know get to know different people but also to share that like there's been a few times i've wanted to just be like you know what this is a lot of work to do by myself and uh I'm just going to like, you know, pack it in. And every time that I've started to get that feeling, um, I'll get a message from someone being like, Hey, I just wanted to say like, I appreciate what you're doing with this chat because I felt really isolated. And this is like a, a nice way to feel connected to people. And it's like really cool to like get to know these people virtually through, um, listening to your things. And I'm like, all right, I can't quit yet. This is a yeah, bit bigger than tomorrow. I, yeah, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, it's a day at a time with a lot of this stuff. And, you know, for me, it sounds like yours is, is not dissimilar. I found I have a toolkit and, and photography is absolutely part of my toolkit. I mean, first of all, it gets me out in the world and that in itself helps me feel better. Outside, fresh air, moving, you know, and um, taking the pictures always helps and seeing other people in the world always helps. So, um, you know, I meditate, I exercise, I know nah, nah, there's a lot of stuff. Um, I read novels because I love seeing, you know, other worlds and, and great writing is amazing to me. So there's there's a lot of things that, that those of us who live with this do to feel better. That's my experience anyway. It sounds like you have your own list. Yeah. Like for, for me, a big part of it was that, like photography really it gave me a bit of a purpose. Um, and it, it started in 2008 was what really kicked it off. And I talked a little bit about this uh, with my last guest last week, Stephen. But um, I went to a photo workshop in Boston at the Leica store. And uh, that was a bit of a turning point for me because I kind of hit this point where it's like, you know what, I'm ready to end it. And I'm just done with, with all of this. And um, I decided, you know, before I do it, I'm going to take this trip to Boston and just mm -hmm. like do that because yeah, I wanted to meet one of my photography heroes. And um, I thought that would be kind of cool. And, um, on that trip, I kind of found a new lease. Um, I made a really good friend there and he introduced me to this, um, world of instant photography, um, and the instant photography community. And, um, from there that just like exploded into this, like, you know, finding a new family kind of thing and did a lot of traveling. Um, so like before the pandemic, um, you know, I, I would frequently go down to like Texas, uh, to, see the uh the photography people down there in denton uh, at the instant film society um you know travel to different shows um there was one 
the Darkroom Lab did a really cool thing in San Clemente in 2019 uh, called a Film Pidea, which is like a knowledge sharing weekend. And, um, yeah, that was, uh, I met, uh, Grant Britton there and, uh, mm-hmm. he's a fantastic photographer and also just a weird and wonderful guy. And, yeah. uh, it was cool to have him as a guest and, uh, you know, Pete, uh, Gamascus, who just joined here, he's someone that I also met through this whole like crazy photography journey. And, um, you know, someone that I'm hoping to you know do some road trips with in the future when, uh, when things, um, you know, ease up a bit. So, yeah, it's really cool finding something that, that connects you because there is really interesting connection capability that photos have with people. And mm-hmm. I, I find it also like when giving an instant photo to someone, there's also something really cool about that tangibility of handing someone something and just seeing them sort of like light up when they can see it. Because, you know, I, I'm, I won't lie, like I think... You know, the phones and everything are great with how they make things so easy. But the only problem with the phones and digital cameras and things like that is we take all of these photos that unless we make a concerted effort like you did to put together this book, we end up with this volume of photos that just go nowhere. And that's right. That's that's kind of a tragic thing because, you know, we took this photo because we felt it was important, but then it gets lost in the mix of things. Like I think I have like 40,000 photos on my iPhone right now and I can't keep track of what's on there. But when I take like my film photos and stuff, it's a little easier to keep track of that. But it's also, uh, you, you've probably done it. It's hours and hours and hours to organize them. I mean, there's no, you know, I, I will say I have close to 200,000 photos on my iMac. I'm not proud of it. I try and get rid of them. But that's because I can take, I don't know, hundreds in a day because I'll follow along behind somebody and it'll take me 20, 30 images to get the hand swing right and the lights and nobody else around and whatever, whatever, whatever. And, you know, do I go back and and get rid of all the not good ones? Not often enough, you know, and it sort of has become an, oh, well, it's kind of like an endless task, you know. (laughs) So you can dig in and do it like even getting rid of a thousand is unnoticeable. So I, but I hear you because when you're doing your instant photos, that's it. You know, you have to really think about it, which mm-hmm. is kind of wonderful. It, it is kind of wonderful. And like, it, it's a cool gift to be able to share with someone. Um, but even if you're not doing instant, like and you're shooting with a digital camera, you're shooting with an iPhone, um, like you can pick up little printers that allow you to print the images on things, or you can send them to a lab and get them printed. Um, or even if you wanted to throw together a, a book and um, you feel intimidated by it, uh, you really shouldn't. There's lots of cool services out there. Um, one that myself and a bunch of friends have used to, to make books um, for, for ourselves and to put out for friends is Blurb. And um, you know, a lot of us have found that it's worked really well uh, the quality is fairly decent. The prices is, is uh, fairly decent, and they do offer um, you know print-on-demand options, which I took advantage of for this last book because um, I just didn't have the capacity to do um, a volumed run on it myself and do all the shipping and everything um, like I did for the first book that I put out. Um, 
and it just if I waited for the time I had that capacity to do it, it, it probably would just never see the light of day. So mm-hmm. I just decided, you know what, to heck with it. I'm just going to throw it on blurb and put it in the print shop and people can just, you know, buy it at, at their own will. Um, so there, there's lots of cool tools where you can make um, things to get out there. And if you don't think you have something interesting to share, um, I'm going to challenge you and say that you're probably wrong. You know, you, you probably have lots of interesting things that to you may not seem interesting, but to other people it may be absolutely fascinating and something they've never seen before. Or something that conjures up like, you know, different thoughts or inspires them to do something. So, you know, by all means, share. It's everybody has a story. Yeah. Everybody has a story. And that, you know, is a real lesson in life. If you're young watching this, everybody has a story. You don't want to go to your quote, boring aunts and uncles or grandpas, trust me, if you ask them about their life, you will be amazed. Exactly. Or even just talking to strangers. Um, So a couple of years ago, I took a road trip to Tulsa (laughs) and we drove through parts of the old Route 66. And Mm. uh, we stopped in, I think it was uh, Miami, Missouri. Um, It's spelled Miami, but it's Miami. And, uh, which I thought was kind of hilarious, but we went to, um, White's Grill there and there was this lady working there, uh, named Peggy, fantastic woman. She had really interesting stories and just was so willing to share. And I thought that was really beautiful. And we've actually become like Facebook pals now. (laughs) And so it's like this, this lady who I saw once who, you know, served me a really great breakfast, um, has become a friend of sorts and, uh, you know, we, we stay in touch and, um, you know, that trip talking to lots of different strangers really left me with this, um, impression that there's so many people out there that have these like really wonderful, fantastic stories of things that they've experienced that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those stories are going to just kind of die with them unless, um, someone, hears those stories and, um, you know, finds a way to share them or like capture them or something. And, um, it, it kind of bummed me out a little bit that like, you know, these really interesting people will just kind of, will they'll fade away when, when, when they do. And, uh, it made me wish I was like independently wealthy. So all I could do is just like drive around <laughs> and like take photos and interview people and like create like a a compendium of like all of these interesting stories of like random strangers. Well, you know, we know that anybody and everybody could fill a 20 page blurb photo book with their life. Absolutely. And everybody has the stories or images to do it or images of, you know, Oh, I went to Paris one year, you know, Eiffel tower, whatever it is. Because the older people get, the less they're seen, of course. That's another whole topic. Um, people sort of walk by old people. But, man, those stories are unbelievable. And I've, my husband was much older than me. So I met a lot of people who had had one or two or three or four careers. Oh, wow. And hearing, you know, hearing about them, because even more so now, but in, even, in, in the, even in the olden days, people had, you know, more than, often more than one career or more than one job for sure. Um, and it's just amazing to hear how people move from one thing to another, you know? Yeah. It, and, and that's like an interesting point that you made there is like older people kind of become a bit invisible. And I think that's a tragic shame because, um, 
they have in this society anyway in yeah. our world yeah in in like north american society you know it's just like whatever ship them off to the old folks home and um you know let the care aides deal with them which i i find wickedly tragic because um these people have wonderful stories they still have so much to share and so much to offer and the world we keep proving it time and time again everything is very cyclical so you know what some of these people have experienced their knowledge and experience with that will be just as valuable today as it was for them when they were going through that if we just took the time to listen to them Mm -hmm. and um I, i just think it's unfortunate we don't and um you know, just even like talking to, to strangers, like we, we've become very isolated and just sort of like defensive and, um, it just, you know, just showing some kindness and spending a couple minutes to chat with someone, you get some really interesting stories. Like I met this guy, Mike, he's, uh, you know, a houseless gentleman that lives uh, near the grocery store that uh, I shop at. And um, he, um, sorry, just a sec here. He was interesting because like, I kind of liked the way that he was looking. And um, he just was like a a very odd looking character. And uh, I started chatting with him and asked him if I could take his photo. And, uh, he was like, yeah, that's totally fine. Like you can take my photo. And I was like, yeah, what's your name? And he's like, oh, well, my name is Mike, but, uh, you can call me, call me the Sasquatch. Cause he's like, I'm, people call me the main street Sasquatch. <laughs> he's like on account of my like big beard and like big hair. And he was just like a really cool guy that, you know, probably a couple hundred people that day just walked past and didn't think twice about, but, um, you know, it didn't like ruin my day at all to take five minutes just to treat him like a, a decent human being and, um, you know, listen to his story. And, um, you know, now Mike, the main street Sasquatch will live a little bit longer because mm. I remember his story a bit. Mm, nice. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Which brings up memories and photos and how important photos can be in remembering things. Absolutely. And like, that's one of the things that, you know, photos in general, I I appreciate and why I started shooting a lot more because of, um, even before my car accident, my memory was starting to fail me a bit. Um, but post the car accident a couple of years ago, my memory is absolutely garbage now. Um, so I can't remember, um, you know, things, um, very easily. So I find, uh, the photos help a lot. Like when I look at a photo, especially instant photos. Um, I almost find instant photos like they're um, like a time machine. Like when Mm. I pick up an instant photo, I can picture that moment and everything else that was around me when I was taking that photo. And I can just kind of like close my eyes and see that moment um, just because I picked up that photo and took a look at it. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, similarly, I can look at just about any photo I've taken and tell you where I was and, and in New York, sort of where, what block I took it on, you know, and it is amazing. Well, they still don't know how the brain works, you know, they, 
There's still no idea, like, how does memory work? How does that work? And then you discover that when it comes to crimes, witnesses have terrible memories. You know, do you have a blue shirt or red shirt? Do you have glasses or not? Was there a beard or not? What color was the hair? Was it receding? Was it, it's like, they don't match up. So it is kind of interesting. Yeah, brains are an interesting thing. And like uh, dealing with all the doctors since the car accident has been an interesting one because um, most of them have like, I had one guy legit say, like a doctor, um, he was like, the brain is a magical, mystical thing that we barely understand. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. you know, as someone coming to you looking for help for a traumatic brain injury, that is not inspiring <laughs> for assistance. True. <laughs> that you're referring yeah. to it as this magical, mythical beast kind of thing. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting having also had uh, a serious concussion and suffered with post-concussion syndrome for two years. Um, I also identify with that. And I also, you know, it's been interesting in COVID hearing about people, they really organized those long COVID people. They got organized. They got Facebook groups. They're getting research done. It's amazing and, and encouraging because nobody's done that. No post-concussive syndrome and there's millions and millions of people who have it i read some study that they figure you know 10 to 20 percent of all adults have had a concussion usually undiagnosed at some point you know i had a fall i had a girlfriend who had a fall and didn't hit her head but she had a real concussion i mean she had issues with vision and memory and balance for weeks and weeks and weeks after anyway well you don't necessarily need to hit your head uh because like you know our, our brain is pretty soft and, and mushy, but the inside of our skull is very not. And so even if you don't hit your head, if you have enough movement around that you knock your brain meat around inside of the skull cave, you know, that that's enough to cause some, some issues there. Like my doctor was treating someone who just bumped their head on a cupboard and could no longer speak English. They had to like go see a speech person to relearn how to speak English again, just from like a little bump on a cupboard. It's, a, it's intense. I mean, that's, that's a whole other subject. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I feel like we've, we've covered quite an interesting gamut. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've had a fantastic time chatting with you. Um, I, I have to be totally frank, though. Um, I have no idea how this happened. I, I believe your publicist somehow came across me um, because I got a random email from him um, asking if I'd be interested to, uh, to chat with you. And um, yeah, I, I was a little surprised by that because, um, you know, I don't advertise for the chat or anything like that. So um, this has been a first for me where I'm talking to someone that I wasn't familiar with beforehand. Ah, well, I think we did find being introduced. And I do want to say that, by the way, if you follow the rest of Route 66 out to Santa Monica here, you'll go at the bottom of my street. Oh, wild. Santa Monica Boulevard out here is there's signs that say old Route 66. And it, go, it literally ends at the Santa Monica Pier. That's the end of Route 66 is the end of the pier. Just That's for really future cool. reference, next time you're here, take a picture of it. Uh, but I really appreciate your, your time and, and attention and honesty and great subjects and topics. And um, I still have to look up that instant, what are you calling it, instant photography? Yeah, I'll, I'll send you an email on some stuff there to check out because that I think be you might get a kick out of that because um, 
there's some of the cam they're very easy to use you don't need to know anything it's just you load <laughs> right in my alley yeah right in my alley but it also reminds me of the old polaroids my older sister who had all sorts of things i didn't have like knew who the doors were you know and all that stuff she also wow. got one of the early kodak instamatic cameras and i re- really remember that and then on movie sets the script supervisors in particular use them all the time to document what the wardrobe looked like, what the set looked like, what, what, whatever, whatever, because there you had it. You know, occasionally you have actors, actors saying, you know, I didn't have my hair, you know, in that, in that kerchief, and you show them the Polaroid, and they say the Polaroid's wrong, and you say, well, I don't, I don't think the Polaroid's wrong, <laughs> because that's what it is. It documents. That's what photos do so well, is document. Absolutely. But, um, I really appreciate your time. I'm going to hold this up one more time holding hands so people can have a look at it and um, I look forward to conversing further about some of these things getting your email and um, I appreciate that you have an audience I'm really glad you're doing this there's so many things to talk about there's a million things that touch on photography well and that was kind of the idea with this was there's there's thousands of other shows out there where people talk about gear they talk about film they, they get really deep and technical but I haven't really come across many where they talk with the photographer and then learn more about them. And um, so I've kind of, I really have no idea what I'm doing with this thing. It's just kind of like by the seat of my pants. But the idea is um, the loose connection is some kind of photography aspect is used in someone's creative practice. And um, then we just sort of talk from there. And that's been cool because I've been able to like talk with some, you know, I talked to someone that did stop motion animation and um, t-shirt printing uh, because, you know, there was some sort of photographic element to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's just been a lot of fun. And, you know, thank you again for for spending some time with me. And uh, I look forward to conversing with you more. And um, I'm very curious about this book collection. (laughs) Yes, I will let you know you're welcome to have a look at it. Definitely. Well, Thank you so much. Oh, and sorry. And uh, if you want to get the book, check out her bio. Um, her Instagram is there holding hands. And there's a link in uh, the bio there where you can purchase the book. Or um, it's just on Amazon um, holding hands, right? Mm-hmm. By Diane Conn, C-O-N-N. Rare yeah. spelling, but that's what it is. Well, thank you again so much, Diane. It's been so great chatting with you. Um, and next week I'm going to have, uh, Brian Brooks, uh, joining from San Francisco. He's going to be doing a, uh, bit of a recap on Policon Bay area, which, uh, just happened last weekend. And, uh, unfortunately I wasn't able to make it down there. It's the first time I felt FOMO since this whole pandemic started. It was kind of <laughs> terrible. It's amazing what your FOMO moment can be. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just wild because like, you know, uh, so Polcon is like a big Polaroid um, festival and it originally started in Denton, Texas. And uh, Brian Brooks uh, convinced the Instant Film Society based in Denton, Texas to do an event in San Francisco um, in you know 2020. And that was the last time I was ever in the U.S. was uh, March 2020, the weekend San Francisco started shutting down. And that was a very surreal weekend. Um, so unfortunately, I missed this year's event, but Brian will be joining us to, to talk a bit about it and uh, you know, hopefully see everyone in Denton. But thank great. you again, Diane. It was uh, super great. I'm going to do the thank outro you. here. 
and uh yeah if you want her book uh check out her instagram page um or search uh holding hands uh, by diane con uh, c-o-n-n on amazon and uh you know stay safe out there and uh we'll talk to everyone soon thanks diane thank you all right bye